Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. So now for this morning, we're continuing in uh, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be at verses 11 and 12 this morning. And um, let me take a moment to refresh our memories from what happened last week, in case you forgot it by the time you hit the parking lot. Um, Last week, we were looking at verses 8 through 10, and we were discussing the, the, the fact that Paul is now beginning to deal directly with the false teaching that's taking place in Colossae. And we stressed the reality of, of the dangers of false teaching and how it enslaves you. It makes you its captive. It makes you a slave to it. And how Paul was exhorting the church in Colossae and certainly us because we have that word here in front of us exhorting us as well to do all that we can to beware, to be on guard to be against and defend against that false teaching that we not be taken captive, but that rather, instead of being captive to false teaching, that we would be captivated by Christ. So today's uh, two verses, what we're looking at is essentially an extension from that idea. So Paul is still in the same stream of thought here in verses 11 and 12. And so I want us to keep that in our minds, that we're still talking about ways to defend against false teaching. Last week, we looked at three ways to defend against being deceived, and that was to, number one, to not listen to other-centered teaching. That means any kind of teaching that was not centered on Christ. And number two was to know the truth about Christ. And then number three was to know the truth about who you are in Christ. Today's verses 11 and 12 will essentially, we could say that it's just further building out those points or that it's a fourth. It is to know the work of salvation. What actually happens in regeneration? So let's stand and let's read Colossians 2. 11 and 12. This is the word of God. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's pray for God's blessing. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to sit here and open the eternal, everlasting word of the very living God. It is with great reverence that we come before you this morning, desiring to hear from you, Lord. I have nothing in and of myself to offer anyone here this morning, Lord. I don't want to just be a talking head. 
Lord, I want to be a pipeline for you to pour your word into and then pour out into the hearts of your people, Lord. I pray that your word would go forth in power and with effectiveness and that it will bear fruit in all of our lives for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. So we're going to be dealing with some deeper level of uh, doctrine, if you will. And I know that that can be a cuss word sometimes in church. But doctrine is not just for the intellectuals, okay? Doctrine is not just for the professors. Doctrine is for the believer. Doctrine is just the teachings of God. That's all that that is. It's just a fancy word for the teachings of Scripture, And we categorize different doctrines, the doctrine of salvation, of the Holy Spirit, to just essentially say the teachings of this, that, and the other. And that's what we're looking at today. So I don't want you to be intimidated by that. We're going to look at some deeper, uh, a deeper level of of what actually is taking place in the Christian life. Um, But this is all very, very good. Let's be honest. You read 11 and 12, this is probably the type of verses that we would just skim over and gloss over, because we would read circumcision, you know, we don't do that anymore, that doesn't apply to us, move on to the next thing. But whenever we do that, whenever you're reading scripture, and you just gloss over any verse, what we're doing is we're saying that God's word doesn't matter to me in that section, Because this is all God's word. All of it, even verses 11 and 12, you know, Psalm 119, whatever, all of it is God's word. And it's all applicable to us, maybe not immediately relevant in our lives, but it it will all teach us about who God is and about his salvation, about his work. So let's dive in. Let's look at this. Number one, we need to ask the question, what is circumcision and why is it being talked about here? Is Paul in some way trying to tell this church at Colossae that they need to continue to do this religious ritual or is there other meaning for us to understand there? I want to start off by um, looking at the first two words of this passage, in him. Verse 11 starts off with, in him. That let us understand that he is further reiterating, further making the case, further showing us and illustrating to us that salvation is of the Lord. It is God's work. He says, in him you have been circumcised. These are past tense And they are passive verbs. What does that mean? That means that it's something that happened in the past, and it happened to you. If someone spilled a milkshake on you last Tuesday, you would say, last Tuesday, someone spilled a milkshake on me. That is something that happened to you at a point in the past. And so that's what Paul is saying here. That this act that took place happened to you. You didn't do it. 
It happened to you, and it happened in the past. So we need to ask, what is it exactly that happened? Let's start off by looking at, uh, turn to Genesis 17. We need to get some historical context so that we can understand um, really the analogy that that Paul is making here. But it's going to be Genesis 17. We're going to read verses 9 through 14. And I want you to pay really close attention to the language that, that, that is being used here uh, because it's all going to be applicable as we really study our passage today. So Colossians, or I'm sorry, Genesis 17, 9 through 14, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house, I'm sorry, I started over, uh, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What we need to gather from this is God Almighty is speaking to Abraham and he's giving Abraham this covenant saying, from your line, from your descendants, I'm going to bring forth many nations and many kings. And my covenant with you is that I will be uh, taking care, I will prosper you and your descendants and all the nations and all the kings that I bring forth from Abraham. Anybody remember the song uh, from Vacation Bible School? Father Abraham. Oh, man, why don't we sing that? That's a good... I'm joking. <laughs> but you remember, we were singing that song because of this promise that God made to Abraham, that that Abraham would have many sons. And it wasn't that he was just going to give birth to sons immediately, but that from Abraham, the descendants and descendants after him, he was going to have many nations and many kings. And eventually, the line that came from him was Jesus Christ. So this was an incredible covenant that God is making with Abraham. And what God says to Abraham is that this covenant is going to have a sign. That sign is this circumcision. That is the sign that the males among you belong to the covenant people of Israel. That they are part of this covenant. They must have this sign. Otherwise, as we see in verse 14, if they are not circumcised, if they have not taken part in this ritual, they're cut off. They have no part, no say in being part of the covenant that God has made. So what's being said here? God is, God is telling Abraham that it, it doesn't apply to just 
the people that are born in um, the tribe of Levi. If you remember, the, the Levites were the priesthood. They were the ones who worked in the temples, and they were serving God in the temples. He didn't say that this was reserved just for them, or that this was reserved just for the, the religious elite, or the people who just were really serious about God, or, or any of those things, any sort of delineation. What he says is that every male, everybody, even people that are not part of the, uh, the tribes, even people that are bought from foreign lands. Everyone. So God is saying this is not applicable to just a certain group of people, except for males, of course, but it's all males. That means everyone. Everyone could take play, part in this if they would be a, a, a part of this covenant people through this sign. Now, what we see as we move forward in our passage is that this is not any longer a physical act. This is not any longer a religious ritual. But see, they, they actually understood this back even in the Old Testament. See, this covenant was made between Abraham and God, but it would later become part of the Mosaic law. It was part of the law that you had to abide by this religious ritual. You had to do it. Otherwise, you were uncircumcised. You remember David and Goliath. David says about Goliath, whenever he hears him cursing the, the armies of the living God, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It was a derogatory thing. It was, it was an awful thing because to, be a, to not be circumcised meant you were cut off from God. You were not a part of the covenant. And it didn't matter if you were born of the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Reuben or of Gad or, or whoever. Even if you had been born a natural Israelite, if you did not take part in this symbol, in this sign, in this ritual, you would be cut off. Now we're going somewhere with this, okay? But we need to have that understanding. We need to know what it meant then so we can know what it means now. It was a sign for the people that they belonged to the covenant, that they belonged to Yahweh. They were His. It was very, very important. They had to do this. Now, as we look forward, why is Paul using this example? We're not going to turn there, but in, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses says to circumcise your hearts. In Jeremiah 4, 4, the Lord says almost the exact same thing to the men of Judah, that they need to circumcise their hearts. In Acts 17, 51, Stephen says that the religious leaders were uncircumcised in heart and in ears. And then in Romans 2.29, Paul explicitly states that circumcision is of the heart. You see, it, it was a physical act. They actually physically had to do this, and it was physically done in and to the body, but it was a symbol of something spiritual. Are you following? It was a symbol of a mindset, a heart set that they were supposed to have, that they were cut away. They were not like the world. 
They were set apart. They were special to the Lord. And as such, they had to live and abide by a certain set of rules, the the Mosaic law that would eventually come into play. So what we see then from the rest of these passages that I just read to you is that this is pointing to our hearts. Now, as we read in our passage, Paul goes on to reiterate here that you have been circumcised. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So again, we see that this is something that is taking place that is spiritual. It is a cutting away before it was part of the Mosaic law, and it had to be physically done. And it was a careful, delicate procedure, and now it is done by the Lord in our hearts. It is still a procedure of cutting away. It is still a sensitive procedure that requires much skill, and as such, it can only be accomplished by God. But what is this exactly? Well, as we read here, he says, by putting off the body of flesh. What he's saying is that we are circumcised in our hearts to cut away the sinful nature that we are born with. See, every last one of us, every one of us, whether you grew up in church or not, you were born with a sinful nature. This is why all throughout Scripture there are all of these passages saying that you need to be circumcised in the heart. They had to do this in the body before, but it was a symbol of what needs to take place in your heart. You see, in in today's church, especially among Baptists, we have this awful practice of just teaching people how to be to live the Christian lifestyle, but they don't have the Christian life. You need to first have the life inside of you. And that comes through the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the sinful nature. It needs to be cut off of your heart by the great physician. Is this making sense? Are you following me? Good. It was a cutting away of the heart. He says, putting off the body of the flesh. That is your sinful nature. He's saying he puts it away. And this is something that happens to you. So we can't read this and say, you need to go be a better person. You need to go stop sinning. You need to stop cussing. You need to stop doing these things. What the Bible is saying is that you first need to be circumcised in the heart. You need to have your sinful nature cut away from your heart. Otherwise, any good thing that you do is out of selfishness and self-centeredness. And it's come from a sinful nature. But in the new birth, when a person is born again... This delicate procedure, this surgery in your heart is accomplished by the Lord. He cuts away your sinful nature that you may serve him, that you may be free to do what pleases God. 
See, when we are uncircumcised in the heart, though we may fancy ourselves good people, though we may be moral, though we may help old ladies cross the street and hold open doors, we're still dead in our sin. We still need to deal with that sinful nature. And it's something that we cannot do on our own. Salvation is of the Lord. It is His plan. It's His holiness. It's His law. And we need this miraculous supernatural work to take place by His hands. Otherwise, church, we have no hope. If He does not do it, It will not get done, period. You cannot muster up enough inside of you to make this happen. You you can't do enough good things. You can't go to church enough times. You can't read your Bible enough times to cause this to happen. It has to be done by God. Think of Galatians 3.27. He talks about putting away the sinful nature, and putting on Christ. It is this exchange. And these words here, this putting off, it's language that really means the way that you would take off a a, a jacket or a shirt. It's a taking off. It's a shedding away that which has been cut off from us. So that is to say that in the Christian life, you won't be perfect. You're not going to be without sin. You will not be sinless, but you will sin less. You won't be sinless, but you will sin less. 1 John 3.9 says it this way, No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Did you hear that? Write that down. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one. So we cannot call ourselves Christians if in our life we make a practice of sinning. If your Christian experience has been that you went to church one time You said a prayer one time. You checked the box on a card one time. But nothing has changed in your life. My dear friend, you are not Christian. I know that's hard to hear. But we have to know the truth. Scripture shows us that it's only those who have been circumcised of the heart who God has done this miraculous, supernatural work in. It's only those who are of God. It's only those who have been born from above, born from heaven, as as Jesus tells us in John 3, that you must be born again. Not this is an option. Not it would be great if you were. Not, here's one way to do it. You must be born again. Who in here among us caused themselves to be born the first time? Anyone? No, none of us have. Not one of us have. We all just were here one day. 
And Jesus likens that birth to the new birth. He says just the way that wind blows and you don't have a clue where it came from, you don't have a clue where it's going, so it is with those who are born from above. It is a supernatural work of God. It is the greatest miracle you can witness is for God to take a heart that is rock hard, rock solid, hardened by sin, covered in a sinful nature, and delicately cut it away so as to make you a new person. It is a beautiful thing. And how incredible it is that our God loves us so much that he would do that for us. How good is this God that he knew you couldn't do it, so he did it for you. He knew that you wouldn't be good enough, so he was good for you. He knew that you could not live up to the law So what did he do? He sent his son to stand in our place, to walk the law out, to embody it, to live it to its perfection. He fulfilled every last requirement, every last requirement of the law, everything. Jesus did it all. And when he went to the cross, he was spotless. He was blameless. He did not deserve what happened to him. He bore the brunt of the wrath that you and I deserve because of the uncircumcision of our heart, because of the hardness of our sinfulness, that he may treat you in a way that you don't deserve. You don't deserve his goodness. You don't deserve his graciousness, his kindness, his mercy. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. Because you don't deserve it. I digress. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Before we read the passage, Paul is telling us in our passage in Colossians that you've been circumcised. And remember, from Genesis, this was the sign of the covenant that God was making with his people. It's with that in mind, let's read verses 31 through 34 from Jeremiah 31. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We could close the Bible and go home right there. I will remember their sin no more. I will make a new covenant with them. What we're learning from Colossians is that this circumcision is defined as not being a circumcision made with hands. It is a spiritual work that is made by Jesus Christ. And what he does in this new circumcision is that he brings you into the new covenant that God makes, that God has promised right here that he will write his laws on your heart, that he will be your God, and that you will be his, and that he will forgive your iniquity and remember it no more. This new circumcision of the heart, it was mediated by Jesus Christ. He is the establishment of this new covenant. Which, by the way, this is why it had to be done this way. It had to be Jesus. He was the only one who was sure enough, pure enough, holy enough, strong enough, righteous enough to mediate this covenant that it might not fail. What did he say here in Jeremiah? I made this covenant with them and they broke it. And God said, I have a new way coming. I am making a new covenant that cannot be broken. That is to say that if you are saved, if you belong to God, you are his forever. He will not fail. He does not leave his own behind. Now listen. There will be times in your life where you will struggle with sin. Whatever it may be. Whatever kind of sin it is in your life. But know this. If you belong to God, He will see you through. And know this. That it's even those sins that were paid for on the cross of Calvary. What grace, what unfathomable love this God has for us. See, in the Christian life, we will not be perfect. But we are being perfected. And there are things that have to be worked out of us. There's this great mystery that theologians have so profoundly entitled the already and the not yet. <laughs> it's real profound, isn't it? It's the already of what God has already done in your life, but also the not yet of what has not yet taken place. That is to say that he says here in Colossians, you have been circumcised. It has happened. It's done. Your sinful nature has been cut away from your heart. And we're led to ask the question, why then do I sin? 
It's a logical question, and we need to ask that question. And what we find here is that sin no longer reigns in your life, but sin remains in your life. We will always struggle in this life with sin. We always will. But the difference between a believer who sins and a non-believer who sins is, number one, that the believer's sins are covered and paid for. But number two, it's that the believer is at war with their sin. A believer who sins hates it. They loathe their sin. They despise the fact that they continue to sin. If you remember in Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 51, when David is writing, he is lamenting his sin before the Lord. He is mourning his sin. He says, my sin is ever before me. But what terrible sins David committed. He committed adultery. He had a man killed to cover his sin. Yet God says that this is a man after my own heart. How can that be? Because he lamented. He knew who this sin was against. He knew that I have committed rebellion against God. And it made him tremble. It made him fear. It broke his heart because he knows who this God is. And in the same way for you and I, as believers, when we sin, our hearts need to break. Our hearts need to be just shattered before God. And I'm not talking about just this prideful self-pity. I'm talking about brokenness because you know that it's this kind of sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. It is brokenness. And in those moments, in those moments of brokenness, God comes to you and reminds you, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. I don't condemn you, my child. I hate that you sin and stop it. I cut that nature away from you. But I do not condemn you. I am the judge of this world. I am the judge of all hearts. If anyone could condemn you, it's me and I don't. So don't condemn yourself. We do that so often. Believers struggle with sin and it causes them to run from God. Don't do that. He knows do you think that he went to the cross unaware of what kind of mess you were going to be? No. He knew. He knew. He took a list of names to the cross, and those names had their full history on it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what you were going to be and not be. He knew that you would be weak. He knew that you would fail and stumble and fall and make a mess of things. That's why he had to go to the cross. But thanks be to God. 
that he did this for us. That he cut this nature away from us. That we are no longer dominated. We are no longer enslaved. We are no longer captive to our sin. We are now owned and under the authority of and graciously and gratefully slaves of God. This is the new birth. He causes you to be born again that you may serve him. We didn't get to verse 12 today. But I want us to take some time this morning. We're not going to, you don't need to come to the front. We don't need to do any of these outward actions. I just want us all to take a moment and just ponder 